We are diving into the book of James, and so uh, this, this evening we are going to be doing the overview of James uh, to get a picture of it, because it is a small enough book you can kind of work through, and so I have my little uh, journal that you can buy, the ESV Crossway Journal, which I love whenever I'm teaching on a book. I, I buy this and I work through it. It's One, I realize my vision's getting worse and worse, and so this is spaced and the page is slightly yellow. I know these are all nuances of reading, but it helps me read better, but it has a whole page to write on it. So I might be flipping through two books because this one's the one that's marked up completely. But uh, looking at James doing the, the overview, and that's it for slides. That's it, overview. That's it's all you need. to. If you take notes, you're going to write down James, Survival Guide to Christianity, and then the word overview ties in. And James is is an interesting book because we're going to look at it. It moves. It has so many different topics, but there is a centralized theme. And I was just trying to think of how to introduce it and just kind of going back in time for myself. Growing up, uh, my brothers and I rode motorcycles, and these were the dirt bikes uh, that you put on the racetrack. So uh, we would say fun jumps. My mom would say crazy jumps, etc. And so there's always somebody building a track on the farm. So a couple of my brothers uh, definitely wanted to test uh, the fortitude of everyone else. And so we were, they would build jumps, and, and you would jump, and then you would start racing, and we'd race around the track and, and uh, constantly ride. And you can imagine there's seven boys, one girl. She did not ride, um, but the other seven did, varying degrees of skill, uh, no brains in any of the seven. So uh, willing to do about anything. Um, and so building jumps, you start getting bigger and bigger. So how high can you go? But really, when you're, when you're riding, then you start getting into these different types of jumps. And so one of the things that's interesting about riding a motorcycle, if you're going to hit a jump and you're on a certain motorcycle, usually you can talk to someone you're riding with and, and say you need to hit a jump at fourth gear, going about three-quarter speed. And so you can kind of feel out what you want to do. Because instead of just going super high, if you're trying to race, you want to get a certain type of height, a certain distance. And so uh, the better riders could figure it out faster. And the ones that couldn't ride like myself, you just ask your brother what they're doing, and then you just copy, and then you see what you can, can pull off. But there was a certain jump that required, uh, and the word is commitment. And we always talked about this when you ride, because um, whenever you're riding and you're getting past a little rollover foot jump, so we were, we were you know, the time's 30 feet in the air and uh, doing dumb things, but uh, we all bounced back somewhat. But there was a jump that my one brother would build, and it was a double jump. And if you know how jumps are, there's a ramp, right, and it kind of drops off, and so you would jump, and the double jump is not another jump exactly like it, it's reversed. And the goal is you jump, and you land going down on the other side. And so the first one we ever built, you know, you could, what we would say, case it, you could hit it and not clear it, you could do the ramp, and you'd be fine. But as you know, there's a bunch of boys, and so once you get decent at the smaller ones, now we're looking at five, six, eight feet tall jumps. It's spanning 40-some feet, and now you're hitting the jump. you got to time it right. And so um, I was always smart enough to let another brother figure it out. And so how do you figure it out? You, you, you have somebody that has zero brains, and there's always a brother that has nothing, right? It's like negative. And you just wind them up. Boom, they're gone like a rocket. Like, don't go in fifth gear full blast because it just hurls your way over there. If somebody dials it in. But there's always this fear factor because you're going, and if you don't commit to the jump, if you don't do what's right, if you don't follow through at the speed, instead of clearing it, you nosedive into the other jump. And as they got bigger, then when you nosedive, you, you, you tumble forward. And so I have brothers who've broken their collarbone, broken their wrists, broken various different bones. Um, usually it's the less brainiac ones because they go first. But if you don't commit on that double jump, specifically this one, you are going to have a disaster. But fear is an amazing thing, right? So as you're gearing up and you're, you're thinking, I can do this jump, I can make it, that second jump starts looming large. And so the temptation is to pull back. But the second you pull back, what you fear the most, you've just guaranteed. And so you always had to overcome this idea of partial commitment. You had to just say, I've got to go. Fear has to be jammed down. Um, and then you, with a full commitment, I would say that 9.9 .9 times out of 10, if you hit the jump, 
in the gear that you were told to do it at the speed and on a motorcycle, there's no precision, but it's just whatever full half, three-quarter throttle is. If you do what you're, you're supposed to do, commit to it, you'll land perfectly every time and you're moving smooth. The second you pull back, the second you have partial commitment, it was always disastrous. It was always fear that would result in a failure of some sort that takes place. Now, how does that tie into the book of James? The book of James is all about wholly committed to the Lord. How, how, how do you fully commit? And James paints a very similar picture that partial commitment is not just partial commitment, but it's failure. It's disastrous. It is going to result in something that is bad, not just not as good, but something that is broken. And so as you look at James, you look at the, uh, the book of James is writing um, to a mostly Jewish believers that are dispersed. They're scattered around the world. If you look at the first one, it's James, the servant of God and of Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. And what does that mean? He's writing to people that aren't in Jerusalem. They're not in Israel. They're outside. So they're in Gentile lands. They're dispersed out of there. And he's writing to prod them to consider their Christian life and behavior. And it is a push to examine themselves and see if they're fully living out true faith. And so he's saying to these people in a church, people that have encountered Christ, encountered the preaching of the apostles, he's saying, are you living out a full faith? As Douglas Moo notes, basic to all that James says in his letter is his concern that his readers stop compromising with worldly values and behavior and give themselves wholly to the Lord. Now, pause for a second. We're in James. What does the church look like today? What does Christianity look like today? And I dare say that no matter where you go in the world, um, and I know when we travel around the world and we bump into a church in another country and sometimes we, we connect to their emotion in the moment, we see maybe what's at the best, but having traveled around the world, I can say with fairly good confidence, you go around the world and what you see from the church is that same wrestling with the world, wrestling to live holy for the Lord because something else always seems to attract and pull people in. Christians seem to have found the loophole that allows partial commitment, partial behavior, and or partial ethics. And that's exactly what James is talking about. So you rewind back to 44 AD and you have a church and its initial letter coming out and you come now to 2023 and you're going to see Christians that find in their mind a way to justify not being wholly committed. And what James states and how it speaks to us today like it did then is he's saying very boldly and clearly there is no loophole. There is no out. There is no way to rewrite this. He's going to confront the behavior, the, the living of the Christian faith. Now, James, as I mentioned, is writing outside of Jerusalem. He is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is, this is the guy that's leading it. Are there other elders in that church? Yes, they are. He's clearly the head. He's clearly the one that's leading. Uh, you go to Acts 15 and you see Paul coming to talk to him. This book goes out before the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. So this is before Paul comes from the Gentile churches, before Paul comes to talk to him about the Judaizers, about the legalists. This is James writing out to the churches before that council, and he is saying, examine your faith to see if it's genuine saving faith. Make sure, and this is something that Paul actually admonishes the church in Corinth to do. This is something that he's going to talk about uh, living out your faith in Galatians. Now, Paul is known for uh, salvation by faith alone, which, which we're going to talk about the tension that a lot of people see in James, and it's a misinterpretation of James uh, through the years. But, but Paul and James align, but James is actually talking about people who aren't living out their faith. Um, he's writing at a time of hardship. We're going to witness some severe economic crises during this time. 
Uh, Paul was raising money to come back to Jerusalem. There's the beginnings of a social, political, and religious upheavals. It is 44 to 49 A.D. By 70 A.D., there's a complete revolt in Jerusalem, and Rome destroys the temple, annihilates it completely down. But there are very significant worldwide um, battles. When I say battles, economic crisis, food shortages. And so the church abroad was actually going to help Jerusalem. So severe poverty and famine were realities. And I want you to, you got to have that in your mind. That, that's something that frames when James is writing out, a lot of that he's going to say about poor and rich is in the context of Old Testament writing, but also in the context of where they are right now. And the idea of consistent and testing and struggle going on builds a context for James. Now, by context, I mean it is the atmosphere in which it sits. It is not the main topic of the letter. Yes, he's going to talk about testing. Yes, he's going to refer to it. But it is not the main topic of what he's talking about. It's all about a call. That driving thrust is a call to be wholly committed in doctrine and living to the Lord. But testing and trial do form the basis in which we read the book of James. So as you read James, you are seeing a church under duress. You're seeing people that are strained and stressed especially in Jerusalem. There's a lot going on there. And remember, he's based out of Jerusalem going out. And at this time in history, and even Paul is going to come check in with the church in Jerusalem, the hub that goes out from there. The book begins with the idea of testing. It forms a foundation. If you uh, look at James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4, it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And that's what he's talking about, all this stress. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or it produces or works patience. Patience is not the best word there, because patience implies enduring for a time until it's over. The word in Greek really means steadfast or enduring. And so there's this idea of building a trait that endures, that is steadfastness, and that's going to permeate the book. And then it goes on for, it says, but let, depending on what translation, but let patience or but let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking or wanting nothing. And so the book begins with the foundation. What's the first thing he says? I'm James. I'm writing to the dispersed tribes. And I know you're in trouble. I know you're feeling testing. I know you feel the pressure. I know what's coming in. And this idea of being steadfast, of enduring, but not enduring. And again, we think that, right? So if you go to have, uh, you take a kid to get an, um, shots in the arm and you tell them, hey, just endure it. You can handle it. You're calling for them to endure the shot until it's over. The word patience, most of the time listed in James or the word steadfastness in the Greek word that they're translating is build the characteristic of endurance. And James will use patience in the temporal sense, like be patient through this time to get to steadfastness, which is a character trait now. So you become a person who endures, not that you just endure this, but you build the character trait of endurance. And as you read through the book of James, the idea of steadfastness, building an enduring character of not being a victim in trials resurfaces. If you look at James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or trials, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. If you look further on, James chapter 5, and this is something, if you're reading through James, you'll, you'll hit this word over and over again. Go to James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the fr precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. And that's the idea of building the endurance that lasts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Flip to verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In other words, trials and testing and the idea of being able to be steadfast, to be patient, but that word patient, again, is a word that means that you endure for a long time. You build the character trait 
of being enduring, that permeates the whole book. We're going to go back to Job. We're going to talk about testing here. We're going to talk about how this is going to build this in your life. This is the framework. But the book delves into to many more topics and actually theology than trials. So if the book is viewed just from a trial standpoint, you lose something. Trials is the atmosphere, and then from there, the idea is full commitment, which then provides a framework to talk about all the theology that comes up. Now, when we think of theology in James, in many ways, James presupposes theology, and what that means is he builds most of what he teaches from an assumed theology. Um, it looks more like the Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read some of it. And then as you read through James, you're going to feel that come out. Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is going to drive to a whole commitment, right? If you've ever heard someone teach on this, what is a sacrifice? Well, you can't partially sacrifice an animal, right? If you put a lamb on the altar and you're going to sacrifice it, what does it mean? It's all going, right? It's not like the lamb walks out with two front hooves and is trotting along saying, well, I was partially sacrificed. If you're a living sacrifice, you're fully on the altar for, for the Lord. And since it's holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you've read through James, he's going to say, resist the devil, flee from him. Don't do what the world does. Don't cave into evil temptation. Don't follow the way they think and the way they act, but get the wisdom from above. In other words, everything you're reading in, in Romans 12, if you drop down to Romans 12, 9, it says, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. James 5 ends with the idea of the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so just see how the scripture interprets scripture ties together distributing to the necessity of saints, given hospitality, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. And in James, we're going to read about in chapter 3, it says, you shouldn't have blessing and cursing coming from the same mouth. The same stream doesn't give forward bitter water and sweet water. And so he's going to talk about blessing and not cursing. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Go down to 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is the chapter in Scripture that most ties to James. And Romans 12 follows a theological treatise. And then you come to Romans 12, and it says, act upon the theology. Do what we just learned. And so James, in many ways, assumes that theology is there, though he's going to touch on these things. If you read through it, and you read through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and that's Matthew 5 through 7, and take time to read through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, James is considered a running commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what he's talking about? Oftentimes you go to read what Jesus preached, and James is going to be talking about that. There are, I think, 22 references to the Sermon on the Mount that are tucked into James that ties into it. And so when you look at James, you're thinking how Paul closed theology, Romans 12, and it, it, there are so many correlations. And then you're going to walk to the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to have James commentating, pointing out what you should do with the Sermon on the Mount and understand it. But within all that practicality, James is not silent regarding theology. It is a practical book. It's very logical. That's why I call it the survival guide to Christianity. It's going to walk us through. It's going to tell us where to go. It's not going to tell you in flowery language sometimes. James is not going to sugarcoat commands. I'll mention this later. I think there's 60 commands, imperatives, using that verb, in 108 verses. He's telling you what to do. He's not... He's not suggesting anything. There's no suggestions in James. If you're reading something, you say, whoa, I wonder what he meant. He meant for you to do it. That's, that's what James means. Do what is told to you there. Um, in speaking on God, uh, one commentator writes, he is very concerned 
to relate the kind of conduct he expects of his readers to the nature of God. Christian, uh, for the Christian, James implies, are to live and act in full consciousness of the character of the God they serve. And, and that's a wordy way of saying this. You live with God in mind. And not just God that gives you what you want, but the character of God. And so he's going to bring up that God is generously giving to all believers. And so James is going to tell them, ask God. In James 1.5, we are to ask God for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. In other words, God doesn't hold back from giving. We, we serve a generous God. We serve a God who is gracious to us and merciful to our weaknesses. Uh, in James 1.17, God is seen as the source of all gifts. If you go there, 117, I'm on the wrong chapter. That's why it looks funny. I was like, that doesn't look like it's right. Uh, 117 says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the source of all gifts who gives without variation or change, which highlights the invariable nature of God or the immutability of God. God does not change. What does James say? God gives to you liberally. You need wisdom, you ask him. And God gives to his, he's not like saying, well, I don't want to waste wisdom on you because you don't use it well. If you ask correctly in faith, God gives wisdom. And then it says anything that's good comes from God, and he doesn't change. James is putting a promise behind there. But how is he tying in? He's telling you to ask. He's going to tell you to ask in faith, not be double-minded. He's going to deal with that doubting that we typically, oh, I don't know about God. He's going to say, that's sinful. Don't ask that way. That's not how you ask. You approach God with biblical confidence, but he says, God is going to give it to you. And look, God doesn't change. God's not going to change his mind. He's not going to suddenly switch how he deals with this. He shows God's justice. He shows God's equity amongst his children. He goes on and says, God is clearly not the author of sin. He makes that clear that God is not the one that tempts us. God doesn't author temptation. James 1.13, sin's blame cannot be shifted to God or anyone else for that matter. Look at James 1.14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Who's at fault for your sin and your struggles? Not God. It's your sin. You see how he's going to be very direct when he talks about it, but he lets us know who God is. 13 says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And so we're tempted to blame, like, well, you know, God put me in that situation. I blew my top because God let that happen to me. And what does James say? Don't blame God. Blame yourself. You were enticed by your own lust. And then he lets you see what sin comes to. And you follow it through to the end, you die. Death. He keeps it fun. And I would say he's blunt or James is direct. God's character, who God is, frames the need and power to resist worldliness, to be wholly committed. If you turn to James 4 and you read, there's a bunch of verses there. Um, we read here 4 through 10. Um, let me find it here. It goes in, Ye adulterous people, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those are not soft words. I just want you to know that. He is not saying, hey guys, how about, he actually doesn't reference brothers or sisters here. He just slams them with this idea that you need to act according to who God is. Be wretched and mourn and weep, lest your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. That's what he's looking at right there. Not we exalt ourselves, but he will exalt us. And so we see God's character, and everything we do is in that framework. 
Now, James is always looking forward to the end of time. As we see the eschatological, which is end time, it's always looking at the future. When he speaks on it, it's a, a future eschatology, which is the dominant perspective in James. He frequently warns believers about the coming judgment in order to stimulate them to adopt right attitudes and behavior. As you look through James, the eminent return of Christ is there. Uh, since Ma Messiah has come, the new age has dawned, the end of history in their, in their mind is the next event. And that's an interesting perspective, right? What are you looking forward to? What is in front of your mind? Is it Christ's return? Or is it you're living your life? And James is going to really drive this forward saying, Messiah's come, we're living in the church age, the new age is dawn. The next thing that happens is what? He returns. Now we're consumed with what the world's going to do, right? Well, this leader's rising up here and that leader will probably do this and then that will happen here and that will set in motion Christ's return. Christ's return is the one that's set. All the things in this world will line up to God's timetable. Our timetable doesn't tick or start God's, God's will start whatever needs to happen here. And so they're thinking about his return. That's what they're focused on. Well, that changes how you live. It changes how you respond. The event in their mind was always near. Again, James 5b, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why do they say that? Because it's near, it's right there. They live with an eminent return of Christ. If you read through Paul's writing, it's always that Christ is returning. Why is that so critical? Well, it's because it changes how we live. And it's not that they were wrong. That's actually how we're supposed to live. When Jesus ascends, he gives a command to the disciples and the apostles, go out and do this. And the implication is, I'm coming right back. And in the stand of time, from God's perspective, he is. And we're to live in that perspective. And James is going to make that clear He's always going to have this idea that we're saved, we're redeemed, and that's what people accuse James of saying you have to work for salvation, but he does not. He has this idea that this is the church, they're redeemed, but he has this, what is called the already, but the not yet, right? We are already saved in Christ, but we are not yet brought into his glory. And so they're always have that tension that's playing out, and you're living towards that, and that applies to everything that he teaches us. Our actions are spurred on by the eminent return and consummation of all God's promises. James is saying, fight the world. Christ is coming. Fight what's taking place. Endure this because his return is at hand. It's right there. Now, as you read through James, there is a continual reference on the law. James interacts with the law, the Torah, what we've walked through, and the overall word of God. I want to remind you of this, and I forgot to mention it, so I'm not reminding, I'm saying it for the first time. This is the first New Testament book that's written. There are no other letters. Paul hasn't written. He's about to write Galatians, I think, the next one up, but he's not written. The Gospels aren't out. When they speak about the Word of God, they're talking about Old Testament Scriptures, specifically dealing with <coughs> the law. If you're reading James... And we just went through Leviticus, that's on his mind. If you go to Leviticus 19, you can't help but see the connections. And he's going to talk about law quite a bit. Leviticus 19 is a summary of the law, and it's going to play a critical role and frame a significant part in his teaching. We've seen that in the last two years, right? When we went through Leviticus, our perception of atonement grew. We recognized the depth of our atonement. We recognized the richness in our atonement. But in Leviticus, what is one of the things you discover in Leviticus? It's a phrase that's repeated in Peter, and that comes out in all the teaching in James. In Leviticus 19, the end of uh, verse 2, it says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am what? Act and live a certain way because I'm sinless. Live this way because your God lives and is this way. And that's the call to Israel. Well, this is going to pull all the way through. And you're going to see numerous apostles do this and, and, and touch on it and go, go forward. So remember, our lack of worldliness is framed by God's character. Why do we not live like the world? Because our Savior is holy. He's set apart. He's sinless. He's perfect. And so because of his character, we must live separated, holy lives. Well, 
That makes sense, right? That's what James is saying. How God is is how you must be. It's a truth that actually runs through all of Scripture. It starts with the Torah, the first books, and works all the way through. We are responding to who God is. We're acting and imitating Him. You'll find that, that James describes the law often as the royal law. Now, that was a term that was used by the Jews, but it has a very distinct Christian nuance in James. He is, remember I said in the Sermon on the Mount, he's in a picture, Jesus on the mountain, and he's, he's teaching out there, and he's in a reference, what he taught as the law, it's going to tie in there. And so when he mentions royal law, he is seeing Christ. And so where the Jewish mind mentioned the royal law, because it's, it's a law from the king, from, from God, now think about Jesus Christ as the author there. He sees the law proclaimed by Jesus, the king of kings being royal because it is Christ's law, again, linking back to what Christ taught. And so as you're reading through, don't miss the Sermon on the Mount. It would take us too long uh, to dive into it. He describes the Word. Remember, when he says the Word of God, he's talking about the Old Testament because that's all there was. The law is described as being planted. Look at James 1.21. Um, it says, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. This is the last part. And receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. The word of God, and he's talking about it bringing redemption. It is the word of truth. 118 says this, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Now the new birth is related to the word of God. What does John say about Jesus Christ? He is the what made flesh? The word. So you're seeing a consistency across this, but this implanted word, and, and so it is, it is redemptive. It is the new birth described. Uh, the idea of the word planted comes from a famous new covenant prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I'm just going to read Jeremiah 33. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, engrafted word, and I will write it on their hearts, it's on them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so you can't run away from that tie into the law and the word of God and how influential and how changing it is. And in summary, though, James, as one writer notes, is more concerned to make sure that his readers understand that they cannot experience the benefits of God's word in the gospel without at the same time committing themselves in obedience to God's word as law. And I hope I'm pounding in this idea. James demands full commitment to God in your life. That he is going to live out and teach out Leviticus 19.2, that he is saying because of who God is, because you're his children, you must live the way he expects. Now, many people look at James as wisdom literature, uh, and he does speak on wisdom. The book letter is written in a proverbial style uh, with a moral overtone. This is how Proverbs looks, but it's a mistake to limit the genre here to just wisdom. Uh, there's no doubt that he, he references wisdom. You ask for it, that's James 1.5. Uh, it is central in truly living out one's salvation and linked directly to right behavior. If you look at 3, 13 through 18, um, who was a wise man? And endued with knowledge among you, let him show out of a good conversation or his good behavior his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first purer than peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. In other words, wisdom's key. But what wisdom? Only God's wisdom. Only that can work. Only that is going to make sense. And so James deals with that and shows the centrality of wisdom, but he's not only a wisdom genre book. He does touch on poverty and wealth. He speaks strongly about these two, and this is often misunderstood. Uh, it's critical to see them in the light of the framework in which James is presenting it, which will help us with the right interpretation. Um, God has always had a particular concern 
um, for the poor and the downtrodden, the outcast. If you look at Psalm 68.5, you go to Deuteronomy 10.18. Thus, God's people must imitate God by showing a similar concern for the poor and the disadvantaged. And James is going to bring that up. He's going to keep that in front of us. That's something that we have to have in mind. Now, what's our first inclination? To dump this into the 44 ADs and try to find a way to get around it. But James doesn't give you that option. But you don't want to misunderstand it, but you do have to frame it out. Now, Old Testament tradition and a bit of James often identify the poor as righteous and the rich as wicked. That is not everything that James is saying. You have to understand that that's going to frame a lot of his thinking, but that's not what he's getting to. Uh, you make a mistake when you make that hard, fast rule. James instead tends to describe aspects of wealthy people that are sin. And so you're going to see him hit hard on, on the rich in the sense of hoarding. If you're hoarding as the poor suffer, James is saying that's wrong. James is going to say don't defraud workers. If you're cheating people, that's going to be wrong. He's going to say senseless luxury, 5-5, five, five, is going to be sinful. Persecuting the righteous. He says, who, who persecutes Who takes people to court? It's going to be the rich. Paul's going to talk about the same thing. Who ends up dragging to court? Often the people you want to honor the most. And so he's going to, he's going to confront this. What's our tendency? We're going to sugarcoat it. You want to know why? All of us are wealthy. In the United States, it's hard to argue they're not wealthy. We have so much. And so he's going to confront it, and it does. It, it's a, it's a, a gut punch. But we have to be careful that we don't, there's people that go completely wrong on this, and they're going to go into a whole form of government that that's not, has nothing to do with what James is writing about. But on the flip side, we must not allow ourselves to just sugarcoat and write it off. If we find that the poor are suffering and we're hoarding, that's a problem. That's five, two through three. If you find that you cheat people, that's five, four. Are you living in senseless luxury? Well, that's five, five. If you're persecuting the righteous, that's five, six. So keeping that framework in mind will prevent the misuse of change in this regard, but it's also going to help us not distance ourselves from that truth. And I want to remind ourselves of this. We live in the wealthiest nation in the world. At any time in history, there's never been this much wealth. Uh, if you think about our society, we consume, right? We're all called consumers. And then we consume on Amazon, and then there's a new one out there called Timu, and there's another one called Boo Boo, I guess. I don't know. They're all out there, and they're all starting, and we're all to consume, and you can buy, and we can get into it. We consume, and so as the church in the United States in the situation we're in, we have to stop and pause and say, oh, wait a second. Have we hoarded? Have we lost touch with the world around us? Have we lost touch with the church around the world? Have we missed something? But we keep it all in balance, and James does that. Now, his most significant contribution is on ethics. Here he addresses the too often divided nature of our living, professing Christ, but engaging in world-like behavior. It's in speech. Verse 310 says, Don't utter blessing and cursing. You see it in conduct. A person professing true doctrine, but doesn't live an authentic Christian life. And I say this at the end of the night. If you're cold, you just hit undone. It was hot. I turned the AC on. But I feel great, which means most of you are freezing to death right now. So I'm not, like, in control of the thermostat. I will set it to where I think it needs to be, and then I can usually live with it as long as it's cold. But if ever it's not where you need it, it's at the back, and there's no special code. You just hit cancel, hold, switch to heat, do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to stop you, so have at it. Um, James is going to consistently push for growth toward Christian maturity. Get five chapters are going to be hammering you to grow up, to stop making excuses for yourself. Stop giving yourself an out. He's not going to leave any room for this growing Christ. Douglas Moo writes this. He drives to the formation of a countercultural community which lives out alternative social and economic relationships in advance of the coming of the kingdom. He wants to see churches that are living like Christ is returning now and saying, I want my life to look like I want it to look when Christ returns. Now, 
The point of highest tension or conflict with other New Testament letters, I gotta see how much time I have. I don't want to ignore it. I got plenty of time. So, is on faith, works, and justification. It is important before we look at this to realize this James most definitely condemns any form of Christianity that drifts into a sterile, actionless orthodoxy. If you are Christian in name only or Christian in theology only, James condemns that. And I, that word is the only word you can use. He doesn't say, hey, you need to shape up. He says, you're a vile lost person. You better see if you're saved or not. That's what he says. He's not, he's not casual about this. Now, he makes clear, and this is where people get confused, that such faith is not real faith. It never was. You're not losing anything, and you're not earning anything. He's just saying, you never had true faith. It was always been a fake. That concept even comes up with Paul, and this is where the, the conflicts between Paul and James, not between them, but between how people read them. Uh, in Galatians, he addresses legalism and Judaizers. He addresses the working for salvation instead of by faith alone. But even in Galatians, he says in 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so even he says only faith and then expresses the need for faith to be doing something, that it would be a fake faith if it wasn't working. Now, James is always pushing for an act of faith, a faith that works, not working for salvation, but that faith that actually has feet to it. And there have been many through the ages that have wrestled with his teaching, especially in chapter 2. Get to chapter 2, and you think, man, Paul and James don't agree with each other. One says work, and one says faith alone. Um, so much so that one of the most famous critics of James was Martin Luther. Uh, he thought it was part of the Bible, but he called it a straw epistle. In other words, it's not, it's not as good as the Gospels. It's, it's this weak letter here. Um, because James wrote about works and holy living out your faith. Luther saw things from his viewpoint, his life and age, and he struggled against work salvation. The reality was the enemies, the Catholic Church at the time, used James 2 in their arguments. They said, you got to work for your salvation. Look at James 2. And so Martin Luther built this kind of resistance to it that kind of plays out even today. This has been debated for centuries. This constantly keeps coming up. I say this not in an ugly way, but Luther was wrong about James. He failed to understand what James was talking about when it came to justification because James was never a proponent of work salvation, but instead having a true faith that worked because of salvation. Luther missed the point because James was addressing a different point. He was caught up in a medieval theology that had a works-based salvation. What was Luther going against? A church that said the church gives salvation. And so his immediate circumstances made it hard for him to grasp it. And he was saved out of that by reading Paul. And so Paul so emphatically states that salvation by faith alone. And, and I'm saying this because James has the same premise. But he's hitting a different topic. I'm going to jump to another uh, fairly founding father of the faith. Moving forward in time, you go to John Wesley. John Wesley loved James. He was drawn to James. Why? Wesley was confronted with a church largely indifferent to the moral imperatives of the gospel, so he appreciated the perspective of James. Luther is battling against a Catholic church that says you're saved through the church. The church gives salvation. You need to do all these works. What were they doing? They're buying their way to heaven. Oh, we need more money. Let's tell people they have to give penance. There's a purgatory. They made that up to get out of there. This is all happening. And so Luther is battling this works-based salvation. When he reads James, he's reading it in his context, which is interesting because a guy like that should have read James in the correct context, which would have been in the context that it was written in. And James is going against this idea of people that said, I'm saved, and so everything's good. I don't have to do anything. I don't need to live for the Lord. I don't need to do anything at all. In other words, it was religion to them. They'd lost the reality of faith. Because if you go to the Gospels and you go even in Paul, it, your faith is supposed to have action. It's supposed to have feet. You're supposed to be changed, not because you're earning your salvation, because if you're saved and you know the only true God, then you will have fruits of righteousness. It is not a possible byproduct. It is a byproduct of it. 
because that's just what will happen there. And so two different people, two different perspectives. Um, we need to be discerning, though. And just to break it out, I understand where Luther's coming from. I understand where Wesley's coming from. What age do we live in? Well, we have a church that's largely indifferent to the imperatives of the gospel. Why? God says, be holy because I'm holy. And what does everyone else in the church say? Yeah, well, I'm not going to be that holy. I'm not going to live that way. He's not talking to us. I'm not going to commit all of my time to that. What do we do? We lower the imperatives. What age do we live in? We live in the age that Wesley lived in. Do we have works-based salvation that comes up? Most definitely. Well, we also know that Scripture teaches against that, that it's by faith alone. And so Paul and James are in unison on the gospel and faith. They just had different attacks to deal with and address. So as one writer notes, James is dealing with, the word is quietism, but it's just too difficult to define. Basically that idea that I'm saved and I'm fine. We'll see what God does. And then Paul is dealing with the legalist. Oh, you got to get circumcised. You got to be a Jew. You got to do all this stuff to earn your salvation. And Paul says, absolutely not. You can't earn your salvation. It's impossible. So read Ephesians, read Galatians, read Romans. But what's the outflow of Romans? And that's why it's so important to come back if this debate comes up or as you walk into James 2 and you start struggling with it. Well, go read Romans 12. Paul's theology ends in 12. And that's exactly what James is talking about there. But here's the thing to keep in mind. James is very clear about this. And with confidence, we can say on the basis of James' teaching that if someone claims to have faith but is totally unconcerned to lead a life of obedience to God, their claim of saving faith must be questioned. That's what James is teaching until. You say you're saved and nothing about your life resembles Christ at all, then we most definitely would question if you have saving faith unapologetically, James says. We're not going to sugarcoat this. If you don't act like Christ acts, then we have to wonder if you're saved at all. And Paul writes that to the church in Corinth. He uses those blunt words. Examine yourself. Why? Because you don't look like Christians, so you better go examine yourself. Paul gives no false assurance to them. James as well is saying, examine yourself. As we do, how do we close out an overview? How do we look at this? I want us to notice that James gives us a choice, really. He confronts us, which makes sense when there's 60 imperatives in 108 verses. He gives us a choice, and he's saying, you need to change. There needs to be movement in us. Decide to remain entirely loyal to the Lord by obeying his word. 1, 21 through, tw uh, through 24, 2, verses 14 through 26. Follow the wisdom from heaven, verse, chapter 3, verse 17. Display pure and faultless religion, chapter 1, verse 27. Or compromise by an inconsistent lifestyle, showing earthly wisdom, chapter 3, verse 15, showing a lack of real faith, and thus be deceived about one's true spiritual status, chapter 1, verse 22. Uh, D. Edmund Herbert wrote this, this epistle sternly insists upon Christian practice consistent with Christian belief, heaps scathing contempt upon all empty profession, and administers a stinging rebuke to the reader's worldliness. It stresses upon the gospel's ethical imperative, makes the epistle as relevant today as when it was first written. The presence of this part practical epistle in the New Testament canon is a magnificent monument to the moral sensitivity and concern of the Christian church. And I, he sums it up perfect. And are the words I want us to, to catch up, scathing contempt, stinging rebuke to worldliness. James is not sugarcoating anything. My close is this. Here's James, a beacon, a guiding light, a survival guide for Christianity, a guide that makes no apology about what is needed, no soft or gentle nudge, but instead a direct and commanding book on how we must be living our faith, he will step on your toes. I'm going to promise you that. If you read through James, you cannot but feel some stamping on your toes immediately. He will push us to relinquish our false perspectives. He's going to shove us, in essence, in a corner 
We're going to say, hey, I don't want to talk about this right now. And he's going to say, you're going to talk about it. You're going to talk about it. You're going to talk about it. You read James. You start a paragraph. You lay this out in paragraphs. He, he has two topics in every paragraph. He is, when I say rapid firing on all cylinders, dealing with our behavior. And so he will demand from us obedience. But he will guide us to a Christian life that brings honor and glory to our Lord and Savior. And so I was going to write this down. I didn't, but I remembered it. Buckle up. This is James. He's going to run us through our paces. And he's going to convict us. He's going to push us. One of my encouragements for you as we dive in, and we'll be in James for 10 weeks. We'll finish out this whole study. So we're not going to rush through James. We're going to understand what's there. He moves through so many different topics. Uh, but read James. It takes you 10, 15 minutes. If you read uh, faster than me, you can probably do it quicker. If you read slower than me, at most a half hour or so that you can read through it. Read through it. Just, just in, in gross yourself in it. I would encourage you to read Romans 12. I would encourage you to read Sermon on the Mount. Because if you read Sermon on the Mount, you read Romans 12, and you read James, you start getting a picture of what he's talking about. Also go to Leviticus 19 and read that. Get the framework that's there. We're going to work from James. When we're here on Wednesday night, James will be what we talk about. But if you have the backdrop of Leviticus 19, if you have the idea of the Sermon on the Mount, which James is enamored as he should be with what Christ taught, and then you understand that Paul, in, in his treatise from Romans, ends on Romans 12 and says, get to living your faith and, and highlight the word living sacrifice. And think of the ridiculous nature of an animal crawling off the altar half offered. You don't half burn a lamb. You don't, this whole complete, because James is about being wholly committed to the Lord. He's going to confront our compartmentality. We say to God, I'll give you a certain percentage and James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first book of the New Testament says, yeah, God's not okay with that. He's not going to accept that. This is not going to be okay. You have to be wholly committed to him in your behavior, in your life, and everything you do. 